All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the paid link on our webpage. Thanks. And welcome back to the second part of our historic deep dive with Jim from Oak Island. Um, McQuiston is his last name, and that links him personally to this obscure Knights Baronet. And like I was just saying to you in the break, uh, Jim, there's so many uh, loose ends here that uh, uh, I will be crucified by my listeners if we don't get to nest them all up. So I suggest we start there before introducing new big new plot points so it will be a little scattered it will be lit, a little back and forth but it's just so that we complete most of the stories yeah trying to find reference to that uh rosicrucian but maybe yeah thomas bushel right uh this was his name was philip ziegler ah ziegler yeah i was thinking i was having a man mind looking him up before we go on i have a tip for you yeah. every time when you come with a juicy tidbit if that is featured in, your, in one of your books, or if it's uh, the contextual stuff is there or something, it's going to be a good move on your part to say, and by the way, this is covered in my book called blah, 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 blah. So if you can remember to, to do that once in a while, it will um, it will be good for the listeners because, you know, for many of them, it's so much informa information overload, much easier to read this stuff, right? So then they will know, oh. This story I'm very interested in. Ah, that's in that book. Do you understand? <laughs> yeah, that would be good. Yeah, so do that if you if you. But of course, uh, some of this may not, all of it may not be in your book. Now, there's so many loose threads from what we have covered already. So uh, let's start by me inquiring about every loose thread. And if there's something left of part two, where we're done with that, because you know how it is, right? One branch leads to another, leads to a third. Then you can uh, introduce a new part of your curriculum or whatever I, I, we should call it. Something like that. Because I can see now that we should probably need uh, follow-up shows to even... I mean, we're just scratching the surface. So how many... Uh, but all the stuff we're talking about uh, so far, all of that is spread out in your different books, right? Yes. Mm. Uh, it, it grew very hierarchically. You know, I, I can look back. I actually went back and read all of my books in prep for this. <laughs> okay, and, wow. Oh, my God. So close to having the answer right then in that book. But by the next book, I by the next book, I did have the answer, you know. And uh, mm. so, yeah. And uh, the one loose end that is pretty interesting is this um, Ramsey link, which is yeah. just absolutely amazing. So if we if we do get to pick up on that one. Uh, it'll be yeah, we must. Yeah. I, I actually have have that Ramsey Sigler. I have that note, um, and I, I want to actually start with um, just a, a, a simple question that I should uh, know, uh, having watched Oak Island. But uh, there's so much information, and my head can only store so much. Knights Baronets. Yeah. When were they founded, and did they officially dissolve at some point? Because you did mention when I inquired how you started to track up the Oak Island link. You did say, and I don't think you even completed that, you did say something about contacting a Knights Baronet in Canada, which suggests to me that they're still around, but maybe you meant a descendant. So let's hear that first. 
Well, uh, they started in the mid in the summer of 1625, and like I was had said earlier, the the initial knights were pretty much all involved some way with Al Strachan and with the robbery in some way or another. So it was obviously the fix was in on that. Mm. Um, they still exist. My cousin, he actually lives in England, a distant cousin, yeah. but he's Sir Ian Donald McCushton. He is the current premier knight baronet of Nova Scotia. And in fact, once they were booted out, they fought long and hard to get their land back because they had invested so much money into it and really invested their hopes and dreams into it. Mm -hmm. And so right off the bat, they were really on William Alexander's case. That would be 1632 when they were ousted and uh, which caused him a ton of grief. But even in the 1700s and then again in the 1800s, whoever was a surviving heir of the baronet title, because, you know, it passed down from father to son. Mm. They met, uh, groups of them met in both the 1700s and the 1800s and petitioned the king once again to give them the land that they paid for originally. But it did no good. And uh, a descendant of William Alexander's uncle, who was also named William Alexander, uh, he was uh, one of George Washington's most loyal commanders mm. he uh, put in a petition to receive the titles and land of William Alexander and he was nominally they they agreed by his genealogy chart yeah you would be the guy that would get it but no you're not going to get it <laughs> so he uh, the title main title he was after was Lord Sterling and so he went around America calling himself Sir William Alexander Lord Sterling, even though the Lord Lion of Great Britain didn't necessarily agree. Mm -hmm. So, and then there was another gentleman who was had a different last name just because he was an in-law along the way, and he made his claim for it too. And there was a big, he actually wrote a pretty thick book about it, trying to get it back. So the last official land deal or, or just like when the Templars turn over their land, the last official one was in uh, 16, I have it right here somewhere, um, uh, 1733. Yeah. Okay. And that was a lady who had married into a, a Knights Baronet family. She was actually a Campbell, but she married into a French Knights. Her name was Agatha Campbell. And her last, the last baronet claim was in 1733, and it was settled by her getting paid money for the land that she couldn't get, you know. But basically nobody, never in history did they ever get it restored back to the right. baronets. But how did the organization survive then? Well, they're, uh, they are a legitimate knighthood, and the people that have inherited the titles you know, are considered a knight baronet and all that, but they don't have any corporal um, belongings. You know, they, they have a title. They yeah, but do the, the more intel uh, interesting part is the intellectual heritage. Do they Did they preserve any kind of rituals or lore, or, or was that is it just an empty shell? No, well, half empty. There, there have been books written listing who they all were and whenever depending on when the book was written who the current ones are 
And they're mentioned in a lot of people's uh, genealogies. Uh, mm. But uh, And I don't know if they actually meet as a group anymore. But what I tried to facilitate, and it didn't work out, but 2021 was the 400th anniversary of the founding of Nova Scotia. Mm. So since I knew Sir Ian, who was the premier, I mean, I knew him through email, mm. who was the premier knight baronet of Nova Scotia, I wrote him and, of course, his secretary or somebody answered. And I said, you know, this is a perfect opportunity. He is the premier knight baronet of Nova Scotia. And it's the 400th anniversary. I'm sure they're going to have some kind of celebration. Well, he declined it. He was too busy to do it. Mm. So he has other titles, too. So that kind of tells you where mm. on the list he puts that yeah, particular yeah, title. Yeah. But even Nova Scotia did not have a big celebration. And I think the reason why is because that is the that is when the name was founded. And that's when the English and Scots basically settled there. But it's not when the French settled there, and it's not when the Mi'kmaq settled mm. there. And so, since a lot of their population is also French and Mi'kmaq, mm. it would be kind of like a yeah. slap in the face to them to say, you were nothing until yeah. we... Politics. Yeah. So, I think that... Could be, but because I, I think the Nova Scotia people, or the, the, the authorities there, are super slow in... I mean... If this had been in my country, oh my God, the authorities would have seized upon it and made a big deal out of it, like uh, tourism and, uh, you know, oh, something to be proud of, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But the Canadians, I, I say they're slow to the party. It's incredible because this is a global phenomenon today. It's a mystery that is, people are interested in all over the world. And these... Um, I agree with you. Rednecks doesn't seem to pick up on it. So uh, you have no idea how many Canadians I've spoken with who doesn't even know anything about this. <laughs> so First year we went there and we were at the airport, which is an hour away. Yeah. And we were in our rental car and we asked the girl, which way would we turn when we pull out of here to go to Oak Island? She says, where's Oak Island? Right, right, right. She's one hour away. Right, and, right, uh, right. <laughs> we're like... You don't know. But by the way, where are you from? Are you you're North America? Are you from USA or Pennsylvania? Yeah. Pennsylvania. Uh, mm. My family came over on August 6, seventeen thirty five, to Pennsylvania, and we've never left. Which boat? We don't know the boat, uh, unfortunately. But the only reason we know the date is because uh, my direct, I think it was my sixth great grandfather, actually had a notebook, and he wrote in the notebook who he came over with and the date they landed and the date he was writing this and that notebook was in the family for probably 150 years and then it disappeared it probably got i tried to track it down it got sent when the guy died that owned it somebody sent all his books to a library i contacted the library i found out who the person was that received them she was retired. I talked to her at her home and she could, she said, I think I remember a little notebook like that, but I can't tell you what, you know, so that was a sad day for the family because uh, we thought it was probably locked up in a security box somewhere because it would be such a big deal for us. But uh, yeah. so, yeah, the, the organization is, I guess you would say somewhat hollowed out, but there's still a legitimate knighthood. And, uh, but I, I think that because, Maybe because their settlement sort of, quote, failed and Alexander faced a lot of 
trouble afterwards because of all the money he took from everybody that maybe it had a little bit of a negative connotation to it, but they wouldn't want to give up the title because a lot of them were only called sir because of that title. Not They weren't a, a knight from any other source. That was their only claim to knighthood. So, And everybody that inherited, every son and grandson, great-grandson, et cetera, would all be called sir because of that. So they don't want to kick it in the butt, but uh, there's just they can't get their land back, and they've tried. So um, right. uh, I think at this point you could do – you could do anything, but I agree with you about the, the slowness. And I don't want to get into a poor me or, mm-hmm. or a conspiratorial thing going on here, but I have developed and it actually started through uh, Doug Kroll. And I think maybe Judy Rudabush, I'm not sure, but, or no, it was a Sylvia Delorme. Sylvia Delorme was working, translating French for Doug on this map. And it appeared to say that the Mahone Bay area was called Merlagash. Well, uh, the they always all the tourist things say that it was only Lunenburg Bay that was called Merlagash. Mm-hmm. Well, I found the original charter. It was uh, uh, William Alexander gave it uh, gave it or deeded it to a knight baronet and Al Strachan signed as a witness, and it said. 14 leagues to the north uh, into the seas and lands uh, above La Have. So I just went and found La Have, and 14 leagues came out to about 55 modern miles, and that goes way past Mahone Bay. So that means mm-hmm. that he owned Oak Island, that Mike Barnett owned Oak Island. He may not have ever set foot on it. Mm-hmm. There's 300 and some islands. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe he never set foot on it, but he owned it. And, uh, the last uh, ever Thomas, the last night baroner ever to receive land in Nova Scotia. His name was Thomas Temple, and he received that Merlagash grant, and so he would have been an owner of Oak Island too. And the tricky part about that is he was a forefather to Franklin Roosevelt. Nah. He wasn't <laughs> he wasn't a direct uh, relative, but his like his uncle was a direct relative of Franklin Roosevelt. Yeah, Roosevelt, so, I think Roosevelt said he had tied ties. Was that yeah. the, uh, this guy? Yeah, well, that and his own grandfather, I think it was, uh, had been a part of the Truro Company, investor mm. uh, in that. Mm. So, yeah, they had ties, ties to it for sure. But uh, one family that I did mention this before a little bit, and this is somewhat of a loose end, especially in my mind at the moment, Mm -hmm. is that I told you about David Ramsey, who he introduced, uh, he took William Alexander and William Vaughn to see King Charles, and he brought this Philip Ziegler, who was a Rosicrucian. Mm -hmm. And Ramsey was a mystic of sorts. He was, you know, he had a philosopher's stone. I think I mentioned that. He was a dowser and all that. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. he became the fifth Freemason. And when there's a story out there that when William that Alexander. Was the Edinburgh Lodge? Yes, mm-hmm. of the Edinburgh Lodge. He was fifth. Uh, William Jr. was first. Anthony Alexander was second. Uh, Al Strachan was third. Uh, relative of the king was fourth. David Ramsey was fifth. Well, so he brought, he no doubt brought some esoteric knowledge into the group. But the story is that when 
William Alexander died in 1640, David Ramsey took over the organization. Well, the Ramseys have been have basically predominated or dominated Scottish masonry ever since. Yeah. And yeah. even down to the guy today, his name is uh, William McGee, but his mother was Janet Ramsey, mm. and he goes by the name of Ramsey. Mm. Well, the Ramseys established Dalhousie University about an hour from Oak Island. The guy that established it had just left his position as grandmaster. His father had been grandmaster. His son became grandmaster, and his nephew became grandmaster. So just in that window, there were five mm. Ramses. But if you look at the, not just grandmasters, but like uh, treasurers and uh you know, they have a lot of different titles. If you, if you just look at all of them, there's just, they just have dominated it all through these years. And so I was at the, the Nova Scotia archives with Doug, we were studying and he said, you know, I was told by a guy that Dalhousie university has a whole room in their basement full of Oak Island archives. And, uh, I said, no kidding. He said, yeah, and they're not tagged or anything. They're just sitting there. Wow. And he said, I don't know how to, I'm trying to figure out a way to get my foot in the door. And I said, well, why don't you get, make friends with their janitor and then he'll take you in at night. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but uh, we were finding all these connections, including the Masons met at, at Yeah, wait, wait a minute, because Doug Kroll is credited for having discovered a connection himself. I think that's to that French family. What's their name again? The Templar family. Ro Le Rocher. Robert Rocher. Yeah. Rocha Faults, I can't say it, but oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. so the Oak Island. But, but my question was, was that from that batch of uh, archives? Oh, no, I don't think it. No, okay. I don't think it was. Okay. No, although it might have been because he wasn't showing me what he was studying. Mm. He was on one side of a round table with all kinds of books. Yeah. And I was going through old uh, newspapers mm. um, and we were kind of talking across the table. And I really didn't feel comfortable you know, just going over and staring over his shoulder no. because, you know, you're, you know, that there's a lot of NDA going on and, yeah, yeah. and secretive, but we had found enough connections like the Oak Island Association met at Dalhousie, uh, the guy that supposedly translated the 90 foot stone uh, originally was from Dalhousie. And I have to tell your re or your listeners here that one of my best books, they're all pretty good. They stand on their own, but the one that's Oak Island curses, codes and secret societies tells the story about the 90 foot stone all the details i could find about it tells about how if you translate it with mary queen of scots code, yeah can't you re read to us your translation uh, well uh it the first four lines are oh god send angels and what i discovered in studying this was that um, and I do have to get back to the Dalhousie thing for a minute, but I'll do it after yeah. this. But okay. uh, I read it as the symbols not being for individual letters, but being for complete words. And mm. that's exactly what Mary Queen of Scots code does. And there was one uh, sheet of it posted online that I saw and I saw, wow, there's some codes there, some symbols there that matched the 90 foot stone. Mm -hmm. So I started looking into where the rest of her code would be. And oh my God, it took me three months. And I went through every historic organization I could in Scotland and England, finally found them in the 
National Archives. They were in a folder tucked away in the back room. I said, would you have digital scans of them? And they said, no. I said, how much would it cost me to have you scan them for me digitally? Can, and can you do it? And they said, yeah. And they gave me the price. So it took a month or so for them to do that. So I, at the time, at least, I owned the largest personal collection of her code, wow. uh, digital code. And then they owned the real code. And of course, now they had a digital copy of it too, yeah. because they, I paid for it. Yeah. Whether anybody else has bought it from them or not, I know at this point. But I noticed that I noticed the pattern right away that these symbols meant complete words. Like the one symbol meant uh, Thomas Howard. Another one meant Scotland. Uh, it was a, a squared off C, meant Scotland. Another one meant Edinburgh. So I started looking into other cases of buried stones, and I found not just stones, but buried tablets, stone and metal. Yeah. They have found around 1,630 of these around the world, principally Rome, old ancient Rome and Egypt and in the British Isles. The most famous being, of course, Moses and also the emerald tablets of Hermes Trismegistus, yeah. which is both featured lore in the Rosicrucian Templar, Knights Templar, uh, Freemason traditions. And a lot of times they call these curse stones because they start out with a curse against if anybody takes this land, mm. be cursed, etc. But some of them actually start out with the words, oh God, or something like, oh God. Mm. And Mary's last known, uh, oh no, her letter that was used, the first letter that was used against her in her trial started out with the words, oh God. So what I came I came to a conclusion that that stone was never meant to tell how to dig up the pit. It was put at the bottom of the pit, face down, asking God for protection for whatever was in there, mm. and also for Thomas Howard as the Grand Master of the Freemasons. And so... Um, what, the, ended, uh, what did the translation end up to be then? Well, I'd have to find... It's, it's uh, not a... It's a paraphrase translation. Let me find it here. Uh, let me see where is that at. I have all of these right on my desk, so I can just click them open and over here. Here we go. All right. So the very, but the very first words, there was no ambiguity at all. They were, oh, God, send the angels, mm. um, as plain as day. Then there was, uh, okay, I'm getting close. Yeah. So. Uh, like the downward triangle was for the word O. Now that's not O like O H, like O. Oh, I lost my keys. It's oh. a supplication, like O. Oh, say, can you see or O Canada? Right, right. The uh, circle with a line through it is was her word for intelligence, but with a capital I. She had another symbol for intelligence with a lowercase I. So I'm reading that as God. Then the upper. The, the triangle that goes straight up and down, not the dotted one, but the solid one, is the word send, plain as day, and the downward arrow is the word angels, plain as day. So the first line was pretty simple. Then as we I got into it, wor words that I found for symbols were great treasure. And you know that uh, cross of Lorraine that they found in the Portugal mm -hmm. uh, temple, or yeah, where the Templars were in that Portuguese place? Mm -hmm. That is the sign. That's the cross of Lorraine that was used in the Crusades. Right. Well, it, it was there. It was on her uh, in her codex or codes, and it was on the 90-foot stone. And in her case, it meant great treasure. Mm. 
then it has the uh, uh, symbol for the Scottish masters, the Masons. Then it has the, the symbol for Edinburgh, no, for Scotland, and then the symbol for Edinburgh. So they have it Scotland, Edinburgh, rather than Edinburgh, Scotland, the way we would do it today. Mm. So the simple translation of that line is great treasure, Scottish master, Edinburgh, Scotland. Then, uh, so, so, so wait a minute. So the two first line then would be, uh, oh, gods and angels. And what was the rest of the first line? Oh, gods well, and angels. Well, the, the pulling these symbols out, they refer to a great treasure, Scottish master in Edinburgh, mm. Scotland. And I have a, I have a paraphrased thing here that I can read you in a second, but okay. the, the sixth line, I believe this is the sixth line, it's very specific and it reads, so for whatever reason she had the word so there. So the Earl of Arendale, which is Thomas Howard, not Henry Howard, which is his son, mm-hmm. will. So the Earl of Arendale, not Henry Howard, will. But the symbol for not is also used elsewhere, not quite as often for the word and. Mm-hmm. So that could actually so the Earl of Arendale and quote his son, or parentheses his son, Henry Howard will. What they will, I can't really tell. But the last line reads, support the Earl of Arendale, God, the Scottish Master of Masons, and his son, Henry Howard. And it's just as plain as day, because the tall cross, uh, you probably don't have it in front of you, but the tall cross was the word support, which you can imagine it meant support, like supporting someone being crucified, whatever. The plus sign was the Earl of Arendale. The circle with the slash to it was God. The three-dot triangle was the Scottish Master of Masons, and and the colon was could be and, or it was and in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. And then what looks like a Roman numeral two, and on the one that they have for, at the one they have in the in the uh, interpreter center, it's that's drawn as just a square box. But on the earlier two versions of the code that Doctor Reverend Kempton had and he gave to Edward Snow, that is actually like a Roman numeral two. And that was the symbol for Henry Howard, the son. So now, you know, this is why I say I'm so sick and tired of saying coincidences because mm-hmm. what are the odds? Yeah. Let's put it that way. What are the odds that the father's, the symbol for the father's name and the symbol for the son's name and the symbol for master of Mason are all in one line of type. Mm-hmm. I mean, it'd just be, it'd be, just be so far beyond coincidence so i have my okay so this is how i paraphrased it based on everything i have oh god send angels and send support to edinburgh scotland send edinburgh the great treasure and the scottish master of masons support thomas howard earl of arendale god as the scottish master of masons and his son lord henry howard so it sound it sounds like they put something in there that they eventually wanted to be returned to Edinburgh through the Masons, mm. through the us under the auspices of the Masons, and they were asking for protection for or support for the Grand Master of the Stone Masons and his son. In the meantime, so it's a kind of a religious, a spiritual kind of yes, statement. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And most of these that makes sense well, because I, I I never understood why anyone would go to that extent to buried treasure and like very covert operation and then announce it like hey you you who are looking for us you who are discovering us just know that there's a huge treasure here now either they would send a message to their own people 
But they didn't. Why would they send message to random people who unworthy people who are not supposed to? Given that a secret, who are not supposed to dig this up, why would they give them any clues or information? It just doesn't make sense. No. Yes, if it was descendants, but that, then it would have to be like an insider communication, right? Because you are our people, so you should have the key. But that's the only thing that would make sense. But that doesn't jive with the known interpretations of these codes. So therefore, it makes no sense at all that they are going to announce. And then put it deep under earth. That's so already those who do do it has to know. So no, it makes no sense. It makes much more sense that they do this. It's supposed to be secret. And they put in a, a, a blessing stone. It's supposed to just stay there. Right? Yeah. And, and that's it. And it always has bothered me that why would you ever put the instructions how, on how to dig up the pit at the bottom of the pit? Yeah. It doesn't, you know, it's just, it's stupid. Yeah. So if you were going to, if you really wanted to leave a clue, you'd put it maybe a foot or two down mm. and say, dig down 90 foot and you'll find it. But it just has never made any sense to me. This made sense. When I figured this out, it made absolute sense. They didn't and, have- and it harmonizes with another important thing, because we know already that there's a lot of Masonic connections to Agarla, not just in terms of what you've talked and others have talked about, like people involved and stuff. I mean, the finds, you know, like they G stone and stuff like that so we know that and when you now in your interpretation of this find a connection to the earliest masons people need to know that one of the big things in the masonic uh, customs if you like um, is um, codes like any esoteric order with any respect for itself needs their own code system now Eventually, like the current ones aren't those that Mary made, but this is a proto-Masonic thing, right? So it makes sense that it would be uh, the earliest version, which then in this case would be uh, the one that is associated with Mary. And what points to it potentially being her code is because Thomas Howard's own grandfather, Thomas Howard, Mm -hmm. was convicted and executed because her code was found underneath his foretile right one of his servants one of his servants turned him in and so the the howard family would absolutely know about that code because it was the reason it was the reason his grandfather got killed mm. or beheaded or whatever they did to him so it it all ties together and there's just so many of these things that tie together yeah people that knew people people that lived near people people that were uh, related to each other through marriage or whatever and I, I've always said that I think a lot of people, a few people knew pretty specifically about the treasure, but a lot of people knew that there was something going on. They just didn't even know where to start. Mm. But these people that had more knowledge, the smaller group that kept it within themselves, they knew it was somewhere in either the New Ross or the Oak Island area. And I could, I could go with either one of those or both of those. One thing I discovered that's of great interest is that if you sight down the uh, cross arm of Nolan's cross, mm-hmm. it points right to the foundation at New Ross. Mm-hmm. And I thought I saw that. So I contacted this uh, guy that's been studying Nolan, Nolan Cross in great detail. And I said, have you ever noticed this, blah, blah, blah. And he said, no, but let me look into it. He did his own study. Uh, you know, remotely. And he said, yep, it does. So I went to the 
Oak Island team and uh, uh, the people that own it, Tim and Alessandra, picked a point, a GPS point that they felt represented the uh, foundation. And Steve Guptill got his gear out and sighted down, right straight down the rocks, and it goes right up to right up to the foundation. Mm-hmm. And then, unbeknownst to me, but I found out through the grapevine, they also had that Eric or Aaron Helton, that GIS expert, mm-hmm. do her own study, and she had it come out at the well. But still, the well was the well for the foundation. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of people that know a whole lot more than me that agree that that goes right up there. So I think there's a... Yeah, and that symbol is significant. Did you know that uh, it's really not a cross, it's a tree of life? Do you know that one? Well, I've heard that theory, but I... I have... It's more than a theory. Let me let me substantiate it quickly. Because okay. Pat Robinson found uh, the directions. He, he, he found the uh, longitude, uh, was it a latitude, in, in Shakespeare. You can you, you you see it. It's so visual when you see the movies and the documentaries. There's no doubt. Now, there was a huge tree of life there in the Shakespeare document, which not not overtly but covertly. But as long as soon as you draw the lines, you see it. And every word was a sephirot. That's a marker on the tree of life. And uh, this is why actually, which brought him to the uh, the swamp. Because right. he, for some reason, I forgot why. I think it's because of Prospero, the mercy point. Mercy is one of the sephirots in the Tree of Life, and it's up in in the dam, uh, coincidentally in the eye of the triangle of the dam. So what he did, he went over there. This is before the brothers started at Oak Island, or around the same time. So they didn't know about each other. That's how they met, actually. So he started his own, same time as the they uh, were go, going on, and. Then he started to dig in the spots which should have uh, stones in them if this was more than just a cross, but actually, uh, because it's still a cross. Right. It's just a more elaborate cross when it becomes the three of life. So it doesn't invalidate Nolan's cross at all. It just makes it even more fantastic. And so he found the first stone at the spot where it should be. Then he found a second stone at the spot. I think he found three. One of the stones can't be found because it's under Tom Nolan's uh, house, I think. Yeah. And then one of the spots is supposed to be in the dam. So you only need, you're supposed to have, I think it's 11 stones altogether. And 10, I think it's one missing. If you if you disregard the house of Nolan, then it was two missing, but they can't even find that. So, and I don't, I don't think they've looked for the last stone, which bothers me to no end because I don't need any more validation. When you find these stones, that he's calculated exact spots in the documentary when they did this, and this is how. And coincidentally, Rick meets him, and Rick learns for the first time about the Bacon uh, approach from him. Later, many others, like this um, guy who has been writing about Oak Island forever, he's making a book now on the Bacon Connection. I forgot his name, but he, he's one of Rick's. Court, uh, Court Lindahl? Uh, no, not Lindahl. No. Yeah, Lindahl also has a Bacon Connection. But this guy who woke Rick up to the mystery uh, because he wrote about it decades ago. He's... Oh, David McDonald. David what? David McDonald. No, not him. Okay, not him. He's... Uh, but he... he... He's... Another one, not the one in Reader's Digest, but another famous uh, journalist. There's Mark fin- 
Finnan was a big writer. Um, he was, but not him either. I'd love. Uh, but Rick's big hero. He's been on Oak Island several times, also in the series. He's currently writing a book on the Bacon Connection. He has written one book already in the old days. I, I think that's what woke Rick to it. First, he saw the McDonald article. Then he got the book of this guy. And then, uh, uh, you know, he was sold. It will come to me. You, you will know. It's, it's not a mystery. He's, a, he's the most famous uh, author about this. But anyway, my point is, Rick meets uh, Amundsen. They exchange info. And uh, then uh, uh, together they start uh, going into the swamp. And that's when they find this coin. Yeah. You can see there's a swap cast going on because Rick is featured in Amundsen's documentary. They were filming on their own from Norway. And then Petter is featured in... Uh, the Prometheus version uh, documentary. In fact, they wanted, uh, I think Prometheus suggested they should collaborate, but uh, the Norwegians didn't know what was going on with this at this point. They wanted to complete their own project. They were deeply into it. So, you know, yeah, I'm convinced it's a, it's a tree of life because of the finds, and uh, uh, that gives even more clues to, uh, I, I think it's some kind of key to the entire thing, not necessarily just a treasure, but because it's super uh, esoteric, it's right out of the Knights Templar and Freemasonic lore. You understand? Yeah. Mm. Well, I, I need to do some more study on my own. I'll send you links. Uh, I have so many uh, things going. Yeah. You wouldn't believe that I got 50 files on my computer screen right now of different <laughs> no doubt. webs. But I, I, just to finish that Ramsey yeah. story, so I was telling you, Sorry. Ramsey's yeah. were Earl's of Dalhousie, and they've played a big role in Freemasonry all the way from the beginning all the way to today. Yep. And they established Dalhousie University, and it was used for the Masonic meetings and Oak Island meetings, and they supposedly had this basement thing. Well, so we had come up with like eight connections. So I wrote to their archivist and explained some stuff and uh, and I actually included Doug on it and the guy was open. Yeah, we'll talk to you and everything. And uh, mm -hmm. so we had it set up for when I was going to go up there one year. We had the whole meeting set up mm -hmm. and I had given them the eight points that we wanted to talk about and everything. I'm in my war room meeting and I said something about, well, maybe when we're at Dalhousie, uh, we're supposed to go in two days. We can ask about that. And he said, well, that's the bad news. He said they called and canceled. Oh. I said, we mean they canceled. And he said, I don't know why. They wouldn't give me a reason why they canceled. They just canceled it. So everybody's sitting there thinking, you know, the worst is that we're getting too close to what they know. And yeah, yeah. Uh, they didn't, did not want to, because they didn't postpone it. Uh, they canceled it. You know, if they would have postponed it, said, right, I'm sick today, right. come back in a month, that had been different. But they just outright canceled the the meeting. And so we've always wondered what what transpired in that couple of weeks after we made the agreement that that they canceled it. So uh, anyway, yeah, it is. Could, a, could, could it be inside? Um, I mean, many have speculated that there are still uh, like guardians. But uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't. Okay. If anyone, maybe among the Mi'kmaqs, <laughs> have you found connections between uh, the Mig? Because we know the Templars and the Mi'kmaqs had exchange. Actually, you know what? Let me ask you this later because I, I want to go a little back in history to the Templars. Let's f first finish up some of the loose threads. 
Okay. First, this is not a big big deal in the story, but it's just an interesting detail. You know how many think that there's a dispute among Masons. What's the first speculative modern Masonic lodge? Uh, some think it's uh, Mother Killwinning, also known as Lord, Lodge Zero. The, what do you think about that? Oh, that Lodge Zero, yeah. That appears to have been a stonemason's lodge. There, there seems to be enough evidence that it was a stonemason's lodge, and they credit James the first with being a quote Freemason there, but he was the Grand Master of the Stonemasons because every king was, uh, and then they would delegate it. Oddly enough, the queens wouldn't be automatically the, the Grand Master; they had to designate somebody immediately on their coronation. Yeah, but that I think goes back to the roots of Freemasonry, which was a male thing. Um, uh, did you say uh, you'd listen to my show called "The Norse Roots of Freemasonry"? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that may be a, a leftover from that. I'm not sure. Could be. Mm. So James was, without any doubt, the Grand Master of the Stonemasons, and the earliest information about Kilwinny is that it was a Stonemasons Lodge, not a Freemasons Lodge. So. They might be. They might be just claiming that mantle as a as a Freemasons lodge when they don't. They could be a tra transition lodge, don't you think? Right. Whereas the Edinburgh Lodge has the specific written records, yeah. um, the, the the date and everything. They still exist. I printed them in two or three of my books, mm -hmm. uh, um, and that's one of the things I wanted to go to. Scotland with uh, the Oak Island team so we could go right to the Edinburgh Lodge mm. and ask them to show them to us. Mm. But um, but it does get complicated and uh, there's uh, I'm I, what I do is I link things pragmatically. Uh, this happened, these people are involved then this happened and their families were involved mm. you know, and the same powers that be or whatever and it just continues right down the line through the Stuart Kings, through Mary Queen of Scots. I look at her reign as the end of the Templar era because of that deal she made with James Sandyland and the beginning of the Freemasons era because he was the Grand Master of the Freemasons at the time. And that's the people that were involved there, like Thomas Howard, people like that became both Knights Baronet and Freemasons. Mm. Basically, the Knights Baronet happened between Templars and Freemasons. They were what? It's like a missing link. Yeah, it's the missing link. And you know, I have to tell you, I was uh, this one Freemason lodge. Uh, it's a pretty good sized lodge. You got a beautiful, beautiful place. I'd never been in a in a their inner sanctum, but I'd been to weddings in their hall and all that. So they asked me to come and speak about the Templar to Freemason link. And, uh, but they said, we don't want you to talk about Oak Island. Just talk about the Templars and Freemasons. I said, that's fine. So, <laughs> because Oak Island is, is so contested. Yeah. Uh, so, and I was only allowed a half hour to talk. So oh. I go in and the place is like right out of a movie. It's got the checkerboard floor. It's got the alder at the one end. Yeah, it's got yeah. leather bench seating and all the, and all these Freemasons. And then I'm standing in the center of it at, the, at this little tiny easel. Yeah. I mean, talk about being intimidated. I just, I'm like, am I going to get out of this place alive? You know, it's, <laughs> so or maybe in I, a chest, I was getting my stuff ready to talk. And this old geezer comes over and he says, uh, 
I'm the historian here, and I've been studying this link for 40 years, wow. and I'm here to tell you that there is no link. Oh, wow. And I said, I said, I'm not here to argue that there is. I'm just here to present the information that I found. Yeah. So after the talk, he obviously felt threatened. Uh, but I have to say, before you go in, on with the story, it's a very clean approach you do. Nobody can can nail you on it because all you do is digging up dots and connecting dots, and then it's left to the perceiver to realize or uh, hypothesize about you know filling in the blanks, if you like, right? Yeah. And sometimes that's so unavoidable. There's no other conclusion that certain uh, conclusions has to be reached. And, you know, I can see how old timers find that as a threat. Here comes you, you know, you're not even a mason and you, you're like, oh, our turf. So yeah. it's sad when that happens, but it's kind of understandable as human nature. But go on. So uh, he, so I get my half hour talk done and I show him my charts and everything. And then I said, are there any questions? We spent the next hour and a half talking about Oak Island, which was was what I wasn't supposed to talk about. All they wanted to know about this, that, and the other thing. I just was smiling to myself that, thank God I knew my work well because I didn't make that. So we got all done. They're showing me some of their, like their charter and all these, you know, great artifacts that they have and everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, people are buying my book. Uh, I think that was Oak Island nights uh i think was the out then and uh oak island night night knights templar and freemasonry from 22 right well that's one of them but the other one is just oak island knights and that combines a lot of different knighthoods and how they were related and it also that knighthood medallion that was found at New- I, I can't find that book in amazon so then all your books aren't listed here well it should be it's it's just oak island knights James McQuiston. If it's not, no, it's, it's, it's not there. I got to call Amazon. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I'm selling a few books and they're showing me the stuff and I'm closing up shop. And the whole time, this old geezer, I'll keep calling him that, <laughs> standing over like 10 feet away watching all of this. And I'm thinking, is he thinking, is he ticked off because they're actually listening to me, like you were saying, you know, or whatever? Mm-hmm. So he comes over after everyone else leaves and he says, I, he says, I got to tell you, he said, honestly, I've spent 40 years studying this. And he said, I think you found the link that I've been looking oh, for. Wow. Oh my God. Did I ever feel good? And, my- yeah, and, and so good for him because that means that although he had a very human reaction first, yeah, you know, ah, a little arrogant, but then he, it shows his heart is in the right place. He's actually into it for the mystery and he is open enough to assess actual factual information and he draws the unavoidable conclusion so good for him but it means a lot because here you have an expert historian people who doesn't know the masons doesn't know it but they always have historical uh subgroups or whatever you know to research the roots etc and these are often academic people too uh at least with the qualities of academics and um uh, and I have also access often to exclusive information that's not found in the exoteric archives. Yes. So I think it lo- means a lot that this guy realized that you were on the right track. It's a very good uh, approval stamp from an expert. I'd rather listen to an historian, a Masonic historian about these things than 
some random dude out of any university, if you see what I mean. And, you know, the opposite is true, too, about not having your work accepted, because I told you earlier about this area called Merlagash, which included Mahone Bay. Mm -hmm. I have at least six maps and writings in several books that absolutely prove it beyond a doubt. And, and Doug is on board with that 100 percent. And yet I was put in touch with the person who was supposed to be the expert in Nova Scotia on it. Mm -hmm. She argued with me incessantly that I was wrong. And one of the best maps from 1684 was actually available at Dalhousie University. There, that's how I found out about the map. And it calls Mahone Bay, Merlagash Bay three times. Mm. And so I said, after she kept arguing with me, I said, all right, so say all your other arguments are legitimate and I'm wrong. How do you explain the 1684 map that shows Mahone Bay and shows it called Merlagash three times on that map? Mm. And her answer was, I can't explain that map. No, but that's that's so, that's a typical academic for you. Yeah. They are they are not into truth seeking. They are they are into career and to uh, guard their turfs. And uh, even another academic, there's acad there's war within uh, universities, right? Let alone someone like you who comes from the outside. But even within <laughs> academia, there is a always a hard battle, and whoever has the power at any given time also dominates the narrative. That's why, like we know, um, what's his name again? You know, about this paradigm shifts takes a generation, right? So, yeah. yeah. And and it has, I mean, I introduced uh, the Knights Baronet to the Oak Island family, you might say, mm -hmm. and it took a long time for people to even understand what I was saying, who are these people, yeah. all this stuff. You know, so I, I look at this that, I'm going to leave behind a legacy whenever I'm done with this, that someday a lot of people are going to go, aha, mm. <laughs> the answer right there in his book. Yeah. And why didn't I understand it? Because I've had the same thing happen to me. I've read over something, saw it, and mm. I didn't realize the significance of it. And then maybe a year down the road, exactly. I'm working on something like that wait a minute, didn't I read something and so-and-so's yeah. go back and say, oh my God, there it is. Why didn't I understand a year ago right. what that, what the significance Yeah, all, all dot connection is uh, depending on standing on shoulders. Now I have my next loose end question is about the Knights Baronets, but were you done with the Ramsey Siegler thing? Well, uh, yeah, just the fact that uh, he, he they predominated in, in uh, Freemasonry. They built Dalhousie, uh, the Masons and the Oak Island people met there and they may have a room full of artifacts. And when we tried to set up a meeting, it was canceled at the last point, which really yeah. was uh, not so much insulting, but just uh, it just it unbalanced me because we they, they have something to hide. They don't want you to write about maybe they know a little part of the story. Maybe they have something right. And they don't want that to. Yeah. To come out that's what i figured yeah, yeah. and they like we kept that secret for the last hundred years yeah now this young whippersnapper <laughs> which i'm not a young i'm 72, 73 pretty soon but. well but in this context you are this is a 600 year old story so yeah where this guy come from he doesn't even live here yeah you know whatever but uh yeah. so what was the other loose end yeah oh there's so many uh, a simple one first before we return to the nice baronet the sinclair's and the Vemis, or however you pronounce that name, Vemis, Wemis. Uh, you know who I mean, right? Yeah, yeah, Wemis. Yeah. 
Are there any connections between the Knights Baronet and, and these two families? Yeah, uh, several Sinclairs and a Wymus, they, they all became Knights Baronet. And of course, the Sinclairs had to do with uh, Freemasonry eventually, too. In the beginning, they weren't part of it, you know, from the standpoint of the 1634 initiations, but they came back into the fold, I guess you could say. Yeah. And the I'm looking up the Knights Baronet right now to see how many, but we uh, I, I gave you those stats of a uh, hundred something. We, we knew there were a lot, but we didn't have any idea that there were that many yeah. connections. You know, we just we knew there were a lot. And John said, Doctor John said, "Well, I'll just handle that while you're doing all this other yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll just go through it and I'll make you up a uh, spreadsheet of it all." So today, before the show, I said, "Is there any way you can summarize that in layman's language uh, that I can present?" But here, I'm at the list here, so I'm going to look for Sinclair. Um, there are a ton of... And while you, while you do that, uh, I'm also wondering if, um, uh, even if the baronets lost their lands, were they ever officially dissolved? No. Interesting. No, they still hold those titles today. Yeah. Sir Ian is still the premier. Right, right. So there was a, uh, Sir James Sinclair of Stevenson, who was uh, knighted in 1636, and there was a Sir James Sinclair of Canab Canis Bay, I guess, who was knighted in 1631. So we know of those two. Mm -hmm. uh, we got Strachan, we got a bunch of Stuarts. Uh, Wymus, Wymus of Wymus, Sir John Wymus, uh, he was one of the early ones then, yeah. 1625. 25? So he was in the beginning. Oh, my God. That's one of the things I was looking for. See, we had um, on, uh, and this is to you listeners who've listened to our shows called the, what is it, the Secret Journals of Sinclair. Yeah. You will remember that one in the line of Sinclair's, you know, there was first these true believers, then came this scoundrel crook, a couple of, uh, should we say, have fallen far from the tree and that's when it went into the Wemiss family and I think this John Wemiss was one of those who rescued the Sinclair secret to bring it over to America I think he married a Sinclair I don't know if you know this if because I think it's the same dude because I, I recognize it from the dating you said 16 25 was he was yes exactly he he was in cahoots with bacon oh there's a connection here, you see, because Bacon is mentioned in the Sinclair Diaries. Um, and uh, uh, just a, it, it's not like a huge, it's just like skeleton information, but it's so crucial, all that information, that uh, the dot connection is immediate. So this is very interesting. Well, actually, and I believe that Rick asked me about a Wymus collection connection uh, quite a few years ago. And what I do have is I have a pretty exclusive photos from the Wymouth Caves. I don't know if you ever heard of them, yeah. but they're right on the coast and they're hard to get into. You have to get into them in low tide and get out. Yeah, I think that's yeah. the case I was referring to earlier when I said uh, the Templar Caves, where it's rumored that they were keeping some treasures, which, by the way, Bruce and King James' father uh, were uh, worried about they wanted a, a safe place for this but this that's the generation before i think william alexander and bacon so maybe already back in the 1500s they started uh, having this idea about bringing it over because according to the 
uh, and it's up to everyone if they think these journals are, are genuine or not. But according to the journals, they had uh, several covert missions to America mm-hmm. already from the uh, late 1300s and all the way up to uh, the new country was officially uh, known. And, uh, you know, uh, they started to distribute lands among themselves, etc. So there were uh, trips uh, to uh, Amer- uh, especially the Nova Scotia in this period, and uh, and they connected with the Mi'kmaqs in this period because the Mi'kmaqs had already, back in the 1300s, had connections with the Templars. You you probably know the famous thing that the Sinclair know that the Mi'kmaq flag yeah. and the Templar flag is identical. And I want to pick your brain about this uh, also, but I, I first want to wrap up some loose ends. So let's not open that door yet. But did you want to say something? No, no. Uh, other than my, I had a friend of photojournalist over there. He's passed away now, mm-hmm. but uh, he was such a help because he sent me a video produced by or of the man who was supposed to be the premier Templar historian in Scotland. And then uh, he had a friend who had taken every Templar record in Scottish history, uh, extracted it out into a, you know, sort of prose type thing, but it listed every single one. So you could go back in and say, around this date, did anything happen? Then you'd see where, yeah, a deed was issued to so-and-so, you know, so it was was cool. But, um, and the same was done by our guest, uh, Dr. Diana Murr. She wrote uh, two books, I think, on uh, simply, simply, and probably a useful book for people like you. Simply, uh, no theories, no uh, long uh, stories, just the fact that who were the Templars, when did I live, where did I live. So she's been cataloging, she's really a genealogist. She'd be cataloging Templars from all over the world, all known information about the Templars in two huge books. The names, the dates, the whereabouts, the connections, the you know, all that factual information that's a gold mine for researchers who have theories such as yourself. You know what I mean? So those she'd probably she'd probably enjoy my uh Oak Island Knights Templar and Freemasonry book because I have some unique uh, theories in there based again on logic and and what facts you can discover and yeah. the one of them is that Hugh de Payens was actually a Muslim right and I explain why I think so which which book of yours is this that would be Oak Island uh, Knights Templar and Freemasonry. Yeah, that's the one that I thought you mentioned earlier, which is on Amazon. And uh, the uh, there's some crazy stuff in there that leads leads from one. What I'm trying to do right now is that every book that I've written has mentioned the Freemasons, but not as the main subject. Mm. It's shown their importance, but it it never has drawn a direct straight line from scottish freemasons to oak island so well i'll give you one interesting tidbit you know uh the sinclairs according to these journals i'll give you the quick story about how they came about because they went from sinclair to sinclair and then there was this crook sinclair and then they went to the will miss because he was married to the daughter and she was a true believer. The, her brother was not. He he went actually went on an expedition to Nova Scotia uh, to try to find the treasures that his earlier Sinclair had buried there. 
they actually had several uh, ship trips over there. So, and the Mi'kmaqs chased them away because the Mi'kmaqs were uh, the guardians. They probably didn't have any interest in the gold and all that stuff anyway. Uh, so, True. but here's the interesting links to the miss. The first we miss in America, I think this is in the early 1700s. He was one of the first Freemasons there. So there's a direct connections also, and and it's through him. And, and he they inherited these uh, journals, and then uh, they were found in. Um, I, I wonder if it is Pennsylvania, but they, they were found then in uh, this remiss area in uh, North America, which is not in Oak Island, but is yeah. in North America in um, USA. And they got damaged in a fire in the 1800s or something, and then they were just rotting in a library in that area, or was it under a church? I can't remember a library or a church, and then. Uh, eventually, Diana Murr got them by the library when she was researching her own genealogy, which is connected to the Vimis. Oh, yeah. So it's a very interesting uh, story. This thing. The uh, last, uh, the last Grand Master of England that was executed was a Muir. It was probably her right. ancestor. Right, right, uh, right. I, I write about quite a few of them, and it, I would love to compare notes. I'll probably buy her book now and compare notes yeah check check first uh, the show i did with her and take it from there i can connect you anyway yeah and i'd even willing to uh, send her a pdf of my the, the best book i have on on those names so that she could correct me if i'm wrong or add to it and say oh yeah not only that but you know whatever you know yeah. but uh uh, now, Diana Murr is a sincere uh, researcher, and uh, she, uh, when she discovered this stuff, she first contacted the Oak Island guys. But you know how they are flooded with uh, info? This was very early on, too, because she saw they mentioned Sinclair. So they never uh, discovered this. In the meantime, she uh, also wrote to Scott Walter, who has American unearthed. But Scott Walter is connected with, you know, a similar... You know, the Oak Island guys are focused on Oak Island. Scott Walter is also focused on this story, but from another angle. Right. And um, he did all this stuff. And now this took off and became popular and they got all the big TV show and his got cancelled. Uh, but he is linked with Mi'kmaqs and Templars and Freemasons in uh, North America and Canada. And so there, so there's like two kind of factions. And this woman... Um, who gave Rick a huge breakthrough? What's her name? She's dead now. Um, a Jewish. Uh, Zina. Zina. She was first affiliated with um, Scott Walter and a couple of those people. And then she uh, threw herself on the. She contacted Rick and uh, Marty, and they got that part of the story. Now, Scott Walter managed to grab Muir. Right, because she didn't go get through to. Mm -hmm. By the time Rick contacted Muir and said, "Hey, we want your stuff on," then uh, she was already deep involved with Walter's documentary, and 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 he was going to publish a book. So people like you and me, we are passionate about the history, right? Same with Muir and yeah. other incidental people here. So if you contact her, one researcher to another, there's going to be some mutual uh, interested research points. So uh, yeah. That way, you too can exchange info without, you know, getting involved in the bigger intrigue between 
the people behind the scenes, if you see what I mean, right? Yeah. Because you you have a good rapport with the Oak Island people. And um, I love Scott Walter. I had an old man show, so I don't take any sides here. Hey, uh, you know, I've conspired, I was going to say, but uh, I've worked together with a number of people. And actually, Rick worked to try to get me to work with some people. And you kind of run into two well, you run into kind of like three types. You'll get the, no, you're wrong, and I know everything. Yeah, yeah. Especially in academia. Which, that dies real fast. Yeah. Then you have the one that they're just bubbling over, and so they just send you so much stuff that you can't even <laughs> you can't even keep a computer. It's like, well, we, let's can we structure this? Yeah. And I had one, he was working on the Merlegash thing. He has some great maps and theories and everything. Uh-huh. Uh, fortunately, he was overwhelming me with, you know, we, we couldn't figure out one uh, what the real truth was about this piece before we were already on to three other pieces and right. created a uh, mutual uh, email between us so that we could just send so we wouldn't have to hunt for each other's email. And we began trading data. And I don't I thrilled with what he gave me and I'm more than happy with what I gave him. But I could see after about three months of it that being indonated by details is not going to stop long enough for us to actually try to narrow this down to something, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I'm more used to the um, finding supporting documents about I find a certain thing that seems really interesting. Then I go and look for documentation, whether it's a book or document or whatever, or just historically known event that supports that. And I always try to get two or three things because... Again, like you said, there's anybody can just come up and say something. And that's the, I have to say that the theorists that I least enjoy are the ones that just come in and make a statement. Like, I strongly feel the Templars had something to do with Oak Island. Mm. And that's it. Mm. And it, that's not research. That's no. just, you strongly feel that way, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, some real stuff. But um, I also know that just from my own experience, not everything you tell them gets on TV. So mm. that same person that I'm sort of semi-criticizing might have told them in a whole hour's worth of their proof, but it just never got on on TV. But Rick did tell me, he said, you know, we get so many theorists that just have a theory. That's it. Yeah. That's all they have. They come in, we schedule it all. Yeah. They come in, they tell us our theory. And then we don't even know what questions to ask because they don't have any proof of it. Mm. And we're just like looking at each other like, well, do you have a question to ask? You know, and, and he said, and then before you know it, the session's over because we didn't learn anything and the guy didn't have any proof. So he <laughs> said, at least with a couple hours worth of proof, you know, every time. So, uh, but I know other people too. Yeah. Well, and, speaking uh, of that, do you know the chap called Scott Clark? Yes. Well, I don't know him personally, but I've seen him on the show a number of times. Okay. So you don't have his email because I tried to find uh, it. I don't know if I have that or not. Somebody may have directed me to him, or he might have actually messaged. See if you can see if you can dig it up after our talk, so I can send him an invite. Because I see, I see he gives interviews and podcasts, but he hasn't had the wits to put out his info anywhere. So it's impossible to contact him unless you have an insider. I'd like to feature because I think he also talked about if it's the right guy now. I'm, I'm it's blurring upon me all these theorations, but I think he yeah. did similar research to you guys, right? Knights Templars. Masons, something like that. Yeah, he's a 33-degree Freemason out of Ontario. That's right. Yeah, And uh, so, yeah, there's been guys. I mean, there's p- people that have presented 
what may or may not be legitimate stuff, but it's certainly worth looking. And for a while there, they had me betting some of the lesser theories because they get so many, yeah. you know, and they would all the data and everything to me and yeah. I would sort it out and see where it fit. And of course, obviously just subconsciously, I probably was trying to make it fit my stuff, but uh, if it's significant enough, I usually mention it in my books and, you know, I know there's nine books. Well, one of them's a nonfiction, or I mean, a fiction historical novel, uh, just for the fun of it. But the other eight are nonfiction, and every one of them comes at this from a different point of view. And the very first one, even though I didn't have my theories, solid theory yet, talks a lot about Henry Sinclair and why he would have wanted to leave Scotland. And I came up. I came up with uh, identity for Glooscap That's not Sinclair. Mm. It's actually the Gaelic name for Archibald is Gilliscott, and it's got the same number of letters, ends the same sound. You know, almost identical sounds. Gilliscott, Glooscap, mm. and uh, that guy was the first cousin. I think first cousin once removed from Henry Sinclair, and also James Gunn, uh, the Westford Knight. Uh, he was uh, he, he was from Caithness, Scotland, but that's just right across the water from Orkney. You can see the Orkneys from Caithness. Yeah. And he was under the Sinclair controlled him, even though he controlled Caithness, Sinclair controlled him. Yeah. So yeah. it would definitely stand to reason that uh, if he took a nobles with him, that James Gunn would go and that uh, Gil Scott Campbell would go. And all that's spelled out in my first book. I do a phonetic study of it. I do a phonetic study of Estotlin, which was in the Xeno narratives and of the... Huh. Uh, You'll be, you be intrigued to know that uh, in uh, this Journals of Sinclair, uh, they mentioned the names of who went over. They mentioned Cargo. Uh, there's so, and they also mentioned Sino. It seems that the two Sinos are not brothers. They're father and son. Antonio and Nicholas. Yeah. One of them uh, is reported in the journals to have been, he got ill, so he had to go back to uh, Europe, and I think he died. So about uh, Oak Island, look, Diana Murr has the journals, and I've seen the two first. The number one, I think, is published, actually. But uh, in the second journal, they give a concrete uh, longitude, I think it is one of these things. I don't know the difference. Latitude, longitude. It can be Oak Island. I think they called it. Uh, they call it something else than Oak Island. I forgot what they call it now. Maybe it was. Could it be Frog Island? Um, oh, there is one. No, okay, that is one. No, it's not. It's a name that's Dog Island. I think they call it. Okay. And uh, they give uh, descriptions, and you see that it can be Oak Island, but also somewhere else in the Mahone Bay. Oh. Now, Diana, I said to her, look. This is Oak Island, right? She says, well, that was my first thought too, but it doesn't say anywhere, so I just leave it to the readers. Now, this link to Oak Island. If if it is Oak Island, you you, you be the judge of it when you see it. So that then uh, links Sinclair not only to uh, Nova Scotia, not only to Mahone Bay, but also to directly to Oak Island. Uh, so, and yeah. And speaking of Sinclairs, this is interesting that Mary, Queen of Scots, was married three times. Her first husband, you know, they were engaged when she was five years old, mm. whatever, arranged. And he died, the King of France, from poisoning. And then 
she married her cousin, Lord Darnley, and he was murdered. He was blown up in the gunpowder plot. Wow. Well, one of the suspects in that was this Earl of Bothwell, or Lord Bothwell, James Hepburn, and uh, he he was found innocent, but uh, everybody felt that he did it. But anyway, he was her third husband, but not for very long again. And uh, he descended from the Sinclairs because mm-hmm. his mother was Agnes Sinclair and her grandfather was William Sinclair that built Roslyn Chapel. Uh, the builder, yeah. And her, let's see, it would be grandfather, great-grandfather. Her great-great-grandfather was Henry, Henry Sinclair that would have gone to Nova Scotia, if in fact he did. Mm. So she married a person who had that legacy in their family. And, you know, you think, well, it's it's great-great-grandfather, whatever. Well, guess what? I know what my great-great-great-grandfather was doing. I know where they lived. I, I even know some <laughs> houses. I know where they're buried. You know, so if you have a close-knit family and you're not moving in all over the world, because things are way more mobile now, obviously, yeah, yeah. than they were even 100 years ago. Uh, my family, once they got over here to Pennsylvania and came across the state to this area, uh, it's they they all live within right now a two or three hour drive from each other, but mostly they lived within a short buggy ride from each other, and that's what. Yeah, but you you you're a special case because you're a genealogist. But back in that day, just to strengthen your argument, family was everything. Especially if you were uh, upper class, you had to track back your family. And most of the lore, after the Templars got uh, officially uh, crushed, it was commonplace. It was the norm that secret uh, traditions and esoteric traditions went primarily in family circles. Could be extended family, could also be friends, but it was on a personal relation-based inheritance. In contrast to much earlier when when groups like that were, um, you know, white, official and public, that's when everybody got recruited, etc. Yeah. So especially from the 1300 and up to, yeah, 1700, uh, in that period, it was so family oriented. Many of these traditions. Yeah, the, the old saying is that everybody married someone within walking distance. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a lot yeah. of cousins married and all that. The only time that it really broke out a lot of the times that it broke out was either if somebody traveled to another country or if it was an arranged marriage between two royal houses or right. uh, the the father died and only left the daughter at this castle. And so if she married this really strong guy from this castle, they could combine and she'd have protection and he'd, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, yeah. the bulk of them were, uh, I went to my family reunion and found my wife. Right. <laughs> you know, right. That kind of Thing, you know yeah but uh my my take on that is that all uh most of old history and most family legends have a ring of truth to them even if every detail isn't correct because yeah. they get lost vent or whatever but they still didn't just come out of thin air and for one reason is because the rest of the family would be ticked off at you and embarrassed if you were running around saying George Washington came to my house and <laughs> painted my something, you know, yeah. uh, they would uncle George or uncle J- Jim, in my case, uncle Jim, why don't you quit telling that lie? You know? Mm. So, um, I, I don't know that Sinclair made it to Oak Island or anything like that, but I can easily see where he would have. And I make the case for it that, that I can easily see where he would made it to, north america without any doubt and uh yeah 
so uh, I look at it. I sort of take look at the big picture. Like there's probably some ring of truth to this. Now, how do I get down to where that ring of truth is? Where, how do I prove this particular point with old documents and books and things like that? And then if I can prove that, that helps prove that bigger yeah. story. You know, you don't have to just accept the whole story and say, oh, yeah, that's no. 100% true. Yeah. But you can accept parts of it. And uh, so anyway, it's, uh, it's all so fascinating. And the links of the families are remarkable. Who is related to who? Um, just right down the line. I mean, if, if some guy, you know, the names are totally different and you think, well, those guys, what do they have to do with each other? And here, one's the son-in-law of the other guy mm, yeah. <laughs> or something, you know, yeah. like that. It's, Very often. Well, of course, no, you know, it's all in the family. And like you were saying about it being held tightly, the secrets, well, that's, that's what I say about Oak Island, that a few families knew a lot about it. And they were the ones that were involved in this, like the Howards and the Alexanders and Strackens and whatever. And, uh, but then there were other people that had heard a little tidbit here. Yeah. A little bit that, hey, did you hear? I heard, I think I heard Joe telling Bill about something, you know, mm. and, but I have to tell you about the Stracken name. Not only did they find the ship with the Stracken silverware and all that, but John Stracken, whose family came right over from Aberdeen where Al Stracken lived, mm-hmm. he owned the Nolan Cross uh, lots from 1847 to 1857. And 57 was about when activity stopped for quite a while. Mm -hmm. But 47 was still in the range of the early searchers. And in fact, I believe Roosevelt's grandfather was involved in the search that was going on when Stratton owned that property. And the first Masonic Lodge in Halifax is absolutely riddled with surnames that trace back to the Knights Templar. I mean, it's just like you're reading the list of Knights Templar and then you're reading the list of Masons in right. Halifax, right. right, right next to Oak Island. So it's all, it's all very, very extremely connected. Yeah. And yeah. like I said, for a long time, I'd say, well, could it's either a coincidence or if it isn't this, it's a heck of a coincidence. Well, I'm, Decided the other day I'm done with that. There is no coincidence. This is what happened. I might not have detail right yet, you know, and I might not have a final answer right yet or whatever, Mm. but this stuff happened. There's too much documentation, too many connections. This stuff happened. And if anybody has, I've even said this in my book before, Mm -hmm. if somebody has a better story to explain it, I want to hear it Mm. because I want to know the truth. And if they say, Jim, it was just this, 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 this. Oh, okay. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'll adjust the book next time, you know, but uh, it doesn't ever happen. It's never happened no. yet. Nobody's, nobody's come back and said, oh, you were dead wrong. No, no, no. Because they can't, you can't disprove a truth, you know. Yeah. But the more interesting for people like you is to uh, learn about other researchers dot connectings because they may be related to your dots. Mm-hmm. They are not, they are unaware of your dots and your approach you're unaware of theirs and when you're when that connection comes together somehow that's when a even bigger part of the picture emerges and then you know there were six uh historians before me who insinuated that uh william alexander had something to do with it and one of the strongest ones was mark finnan yeah and mark finnan yeah go on go on I actually got the email with him. It was so neat. Oh wow! To me, he was a legend. Yeah, I wanted to interview him. He was. Uh, he was. You know, Peter Amundsen has taken up his mantle, in my view, 
Peter Amundsen, who has uh, to a huge degree extended Mark Finnan's own groundbreaking work. He, uh, like I, I told you how he connected with Rick, etc. And Rick was such a fan of Peter's work that they made him the first. This is how they started to have theoricians on the show. They didn't have theoricians until Peter came along. And because Rick was so on board with this, they um, uh, started to have like regular. Now, Peter was uh, concerned with his own uh, uh, filming. He had, uh, there was a team from Norway documenting his work. And then uh, uh, the dead guy of Prometheus, Kevin Burns, yeah. they didn't want the Norwegians to film. They This was before Garland had become huge, right? So he wanted to own that thing. So he tried to cooperate. But they already had permission from, they didn't get permission from, um, uh, they, they got permission from Fred Nolan. Fred Nolan liked Petter. And uh, they also got permission from uh, the other guy, dead guy now, the old, old, other old timer. Uh, because we had fond memories from Norway. Then Petter is uh, archaeologically approached, right? And I would say uh, I, I'm impressed by the Laginas. They seem to really take that seriously. But at this point, uh, the Oak Island team was small. It's the first season, right? There wasn't like a all these people who are the now all the scholars, all the experts wasn't there. And Petter was worried about the excavations ruining because he's convinced you'll find Shakespeare stuff and uh, cultural heritage. So there was a movement, a local movement in uh, the area of Oak Island where they wanted to demand that an archaeologist was a part of, because season one was out by then. So there was like a signature campaign to get an archaeologist on site. And that would mean more expenses and a headache for the producers, right? Because they just want to, like cowboys, just, you know, unearth the area. So Peter Amundsen became a co- uh, He had a lecture there and then they approached him, hey, do you want to sign this? Yeah, so he signed, you know, the... Um, they, uh, yeah, to 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 get our archaeologist to guard the project. No, they have an archaeologist. No, they, they have it, but they didn't then. So they didn't even mention him in the show anymore. Wow. So that's how petty stuff is. But I think because Rick and Petter always got along, so now they started to mention him again, and they started to uh, show some of the footage from. You know, the sometimes they with you two, right? They show old footage in various for various reasons. So that's how politically things get with when there's money interests and you know ownership interests. Innocent researchers and passionate idealists like yourself <laughs> have to stay off these minefields. By the way, I remember the name now. Randall Sullivan was the guy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I have his book. Yep. Too. Yep. You know who else I was able to link up with was John Noss, who was the man that Joan Hope that owned the uh, uh, foundation. She dedicated her book to him, and he was one of the Mi'kmaq that told her about that being for William Alexander and all that. And so I was able to connect with him. He's an older fellow now. And, and uh, I said, well, how did you learn that, what you learned? And he said, my grandfather's chose me as the one grandchild that was going to learn all the family stories. And he said, it took him three years to teach me mm. these stories. And he said, with like with any stories, they could have been embellished or whatever. But he said, he told them to me 
is if they were sincere, the sincere history of the Mi'kmaq in that particular area around New Ross. And so he was the first person to tell her, but then two other Mi'kmaq, and that's all in my book, uh, Oak Island and New Ross. And it's just amazing what I was able to find. Mm. Uh, Carmen Legg helped me with that book, Ah. and Tim and Al helped me uh, along with Steve Guptel to do that sighting along the cross up to to uh up to that area i'm also friends with another guy that that they aren't friends with mm-hmm. <laughs> he's a a treasure hunter for, actually from pennsylvania and uh he was working up there for quite a while and it was funny because it was it was the two sides like you say you know the um but we all happened to end up in the lounge at the oak island resort mm-hmm. on the same night so here i am sitting with gary drayton and with the, uh, you know, sort of enemy on the other side, these three guys from the Finders Keepers is called, and uh, but everybody was getting along great, and mm. they were telling treasure hunting stories, and so I had got my picture taken with all of them mm. together. But it, so I kept I've kept in touch with both sides, and I don't get in. I try not to get into the yeah, politics, yeah, yeah. but I do think that right now. Uh, By the way, what's his name? But I don't remember it at okay, the moment. Okay. But the name of the company is finders mm. they've been working up there near the oh, near the new ross foundation but on the next lot over they've been working there for quite a while and they have to work under a mining permit because they can't get a treasure hunting permit for there right so they're working under the the idea that they're mining but that's not what they're doing you know but um so uh but i think that I've seen it and I've been warned here and there and I am not sinless in that I may be a part of a, a group, you know, or a few people that don't want my input mm. on the show uh, or don't even want me associating with them, you know, and mm. the whole thing is a one way street. Like I made the initial email, but ever since then, whenever they want something from me, they're right there and they're calling me and <laughs> inviting up and all that. Mm. But if I want something from them, like particular information or whatever, it's like radio silence. Yeah. And it's particularly radio silence during the, uh, when the show starts, mm. I mean, you can't get anybody to sneeze at you once the show starts, yeah, you know, yeah. but, uh, but I've shared many more than my fair share of emails and phone calls. Uh, Talked to Rick probably a dozen times on the phone and whatever. So I mean, I can't complain at all. But I do feel that there is a movement of maybe one or two people who either feel that I'm taking the spotlight, or they don't. They just don't like the way I present things or whatever. And are no, it's always jealous. It's always petty, yeah. petty ego. Nothing else. Yeah. Yeah, and my opinion of it is it's sad, but at the same token, I'm not going to give up. No, of course, this uh, and I have, and and I'm not going to give up my books. And if they, I'm ready to go up and share at any moment. I mean, I went up in 21 when all the COVID stuff was in. It took me an hour and a half to get across the border. Yeah. I had to have about an inch thick worth of paperwork. It was unbelievable. Mm cost all kinds of money to get up there. And when I got up there, I couldn't go anywhere but the hotel or Oak Island. I wasn't allowed to go communicate with anybody. Don't they sponsor, had, don't they sponsor your trips there when you are part of the show? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, the, it's been a 50-50. Some of my sponsored them entirely myself. Other ones, they sponsored them. And mm. in some cases, we picked up 
different parts of it. So it's not it's not a money making deal to go no. be a theorist at Oak Island. It might be for other people, but it isn't necessarily for me. Mm. But it's fun as hell. Yeah, <laughs> and, and they give you your rooms and they give you a, a stipend for food and and, and, you, they, and you're a part of history, notwithstanding. Yeah. Yeah, really. I mean, I if nothing else, I'll go down as the most prolific book writer on Oak Island. You know, uh, un- unless they have ten more seasons, who knows? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I have to tell you that I, I don't want to mention his name, but one of the top dogs at Oak Island warned me not a- about anybody personally, but he said you need to protect your research and yeah. be careful who who you tell it to, uh, because he said, we have known people who have outright stolen other people's research. Which is is great while you're talking about it on air, because then everything you publish in your books and everything you talk about on air now is kind of, nobody can come and say they did it. Yeah. But uh, look, I have two major topics I want us to discuss. Uh, One is to do with the ancient Templars, and one is to do with the Knights Baronet. And okay. by then, uh, uh, we probably have to close shop and uh, all the rest of yeah, this uh, stuff we have to get you back for. But before I even go to those two major topics, I have a small fun fact I want to check with you. Yeah. Uh, for example, uh, you said that um, we, you, you talked about how Nova Scotia got its name. I've always wondered about Arcadia, which, of course, is Arcadia. Right. which is also a direct link between uh, Bacon and uh, the Knights Templars and uh, this place. Do you have any idea how that it got that name? Well, I believe that one of the early explorers named the whole the whole Atlantic coastline Arcadia. Um, I don't know if it was Henry Cabot or I'm not sure which one it was. I'd have to go look at that. And then I think that it got once the English took Virginia and then took New England, Arcadia kind of got compressed up to... I, I think uh, it was a Frenchman who first did it because Arcadia was the yeah. old spelling in French without an R, two Cs. Yeah. And and so th- I think that that's how it, uh, it kind of just got compressed up into that area because they were taking over the other areas. Uh, and then eventually it got basically ousted from there too, because it became Nova Scotia. So mm. something along those lines. But in, in my books, again, I I give specific dates when, like, the French arrived. They first arrived at the Isle of Saint Croix, and then they uh, it was too cold on the island. So the next year they went to uh, Port Royal, and you know I, I break it down almost like a timeline, but not as dry as the timeline would be. Some of my books, I actually put a, a timeline in them because it helps. If I've already explained it, then I think, well, if they don't, they, if they don't totally understand that and they read this timeline, then maybe they will. <laughs> you know, because mm, Yeah, that always helps, of course. But uh, uh, I try to stick with the best dates, the best names of the people, the best uh, connections between them. Mm. So, uh, but that's, that's what I know about it. And it did, it ended up still being called in a lot of documents. It was called Nova Scotia Acadia Mm. in the French and English documents. And there was a time period where they felt that from about Mahone Bay down was Nova Scotia. And from about Mahone Bay up was Acadia. Mm. It was like a 
in the minds of the French and the English, you know, it was kind of separated in their minds. So the records jump around a lot, but you have to look for the, uh, the common denominator. Like if 10 records say this and three say something else, yeah. you know, I'm bound to go with the 10 unless those three have some really heavy duty secret in them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so so next uh, small uh, fun fact question. Speaking of these uh, lands, uh, have you uh, found a connection to Lunenburg as number one? And number two, you know that in old maps it says Captain Kidd's treasure or something yeah. on Oak Island. Right. Can you explain how that appeared? I mean, uh, this was, I think it was maps pre-searcher, wasn't it? So... Any any insight into these two things? You know, I think there were a lot. There was a lot of pirate activity in that area, and he was a pretty famous pilot. Pirates, uh, but Gilbert Hedden, who owned Oak Island for a while and was one of the a pretty serious um, searcher there, he did a lot of study about Captain Kidd. And his opinion is Captain Kidd didn't have anything to do with Oak Island except that he had heard about it, and when they were hanging him. He said, if you don't hang me, I'll tell you where there's a big treasure, meaning Oak Island. Mm. So he thinks that's the only actual true connection with with Captain. Yeah, but isn't there a Templar connection to Kid, which is how he would have heard about it to begin with? I don't know about a Templar connection, but there's an absolute connection with the Strachan family and with the world of writing plays and mm. poetry. Mm. A, a kid... Uh, Thomas Kidd, I believe. There's just so many names, but I believe it's Thomas Kidd. He was in the in the time period of Ben Johnson and right. Shakespeare and all them, and he is credited with writing the stereotypical play, uh, the re- I think it was the Revenge play, and that a lot of people played, literally played off his the structure that he created, and. Uh, so he's, you know, it's the same family. And even today, where the Strackens came from, there's still kids and Strackens that go to church together mm-hmm. in that same town, you know, so they're very closely. Um, I cover that in one of my books, too. You know, the thing is, it's there's so, so much of it that I can't even keep track of what's in what book. <laughs> Which is where, yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably Oak Island and New Ross or... Oh, okay. That's a good book, I'll tell you. If, if somebody wanted a book to start out on, is that one? They would see some major connections. And uh, I mean, I revealed what I thought my nut of my theory was in Oak Island Nights, but I then expanded on it in in uh, Oak Island Endgame. But- if, if, yeah, if I'm going by titles, Oak Island Endgame would be the one. But Oak Island 32 is the one about Knights Baronet, right? Well, they're all about the Knights Baronet, but that's when I first discovered that they were kicked out in 1632. Yeah. And see, there was an old legend there that they were told to tear their fort down right after New Year's, mm-hmm. but they did. But the order to leave wasn't until Mar- uh, May, March 29th. So I thought, well, that that doesn't jive because why would they make them tear their fort down and stand out in a cold Nova Scotia winter for three months? You know. Mm-hmm. Well, turns out that the calendar started on March 25th. Mm. back then mm. so it was right after new year's mm. they told on march 29th four days after new year that they had to start tearing their stuff down and pack it up and get yeah it was a julian calendar but wasn't that yeah. the march yeah. 21 no it was the 25th 25th yeah okay okay 25th uh, uh, and uh, yeah 
so though a lot of those little things made sense once you started looking into the bigger picture that surrounded them mm. uh, that legend yeah well that legend probably was true then that that uh uh and also i just found out that there's a museum up there in liverpool nova scotia that has a timeline that talks about alexander coming to nova scotia and mapping it so i'm trying to get a hold of them right now to find out their source because i've been saying that Ever since I read his book and saw how flowery the descriptions of Nova Scotia were, I knew only a poet would write that. Mm. No sailor, yeah. ardent sailor, was going to make a report to his boss. That's for sure. Oh, the smell of uh, whatever, the flowers, it's just <laughs> incredible. And Absolutely. Blah, blah, blah. Had to be a poet that wrote it. Yeah, and, uh, uh, what about Lunenburg? Have you found any connections to Lunenburg? Well, it's, uh, you know, it was settled by the Germans who were brought in to help populate the area. And uh, there are some connections between people, especially when they first uh, uh, leased Oak Island to Gifford and Smith, who are fishermen. I believe their partner was a German from from Lunenburg, and I make the case for it. And I think he was their local point man because they didn't know the area. And so they hired him to – and the, the, the three islands that they had were all named Smith, Gifford, and – this guy's name i can't think of it right now but uh oh young it was young but it was jung as in carl young mm. you know, j-u not originally that's what the name was mm. and then it just got anglicized to young but uh so they were the three that were working together now i don't think they were there as treasure hunters i think they were literally there for what they said they were there to um to um uh, fish but i have to tell you that the way all these connections come together is that the Strachan family was originally Gifford, the same name. Mm -hmm. And the uh, uncle of Strachan's ancestor, no, the brother of, of, of Strachan's ancestor was a Knights Templar, and he was the ecclesiast ecclesiastical advisor to King David. And uh, so, you know, the, it, it, when you get further apart on the generations, you can understand that you know, like any pyramid scheme, you could be related. But when when it's close, within 50 or 100 years, it's going to mean a whole lot more. You know, if it's 500 years down the road, oh, yeah, coincidence, you know, because every family balloons out. Two people have yeah. a kid and that or whatever. It just gets bigger and bigger. But, uh, but anyway, it was just coincidental or maybe not, again, that the first guy that actually bought Oak Island once the English moved there mm. his name was Gifford and he was and the original Strachan name was Gifford no, I see um they were given land they were given their land by Robert de Bruce for their service at the Battle of Bannockburn mm. and the Alexanders were given their land only seven miles from the battlefield for their service to Robert de Bruce so that's how those two guys got to be living near each other and living on well, Alexander was definitely living on Templar land. So anyway, it, it does get complicated. But uh, yeah. again, I always refer people to the books. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, you're just you're just trying to sell a book. And you see it on all kinds of shows on TV where people mention their book on news programs or whatever. And even on the uh, nighttime shows, people are there basically promoting their movies or whatever. But if 
you're providing a ton of information through podcasts or online posts, or eventually if they want to spend the price of a meal for a really good book that costs me hundreds of hours to write, mm. uh, they can learn a lot. And yeah, but so, look, these morons uh, have no idea that, first of all, there's no book readers left in the world almost. That's number one. Number two, it's in the old days that, oh, he's just selling books. That mean, meant you were commercially motivated. If you're selling books today, it means you're passionate. <laughs> it means you want to preserve because you're certainly not getting rich of it. That's and the- even if you do get some money back, you spent, like you said, hours of blood, sweat and tears. So it's it's an unfair deal, however way you, you, you twist and turn it. My wife was giving me a little bit of hard time two years ago. She said, you know, you could have mowed lawns and made more money than you've made. <laughs> you know? Right. But royalties on books. The, you know, the price of uh, most of my books is about a one drive through a McDonald's yeah. for a meal, you know, mm. and you eat that right away within 10 minutes and you don't mm. have it anymore, but you can have the book forever. But but my side of it is travel uh, like those uh, uh, Mary Queen of Scots codes cost me about two hundred and fifty dollars, I think, mm. for those scans. I bought Captain James Cook's. Uh, I bought a scan of his uh notebook that when he was staying in Halifax um I mean I've I've bought so much and I I kind of I got 500 books behind me on the shelf here mm. I kind of look at them as hey they were for my enjoyment to start with so I can't blame anybody else that I bought them <laughs> but they also did help me out a lot mm. in trying to solve the mystery so I don't regret that I bought them and uh yeah, um yeah. but I I'm just doing what I can do I have no other way of doing it I'm not a film producer you know, I've thought about trying to do just a simple type presentation that you might create in Zoom and just upload them to yeah. YouTube. Mm. But uh, there's so much work. You yeah, know, yeah. you know, yeah, I was involved in this. And uh, I have a friend that has a regional talk show and there he's got a, got like four volunteers that help him to even get the thing out every week. Mm. And so I don't care where you're at. It's that way. And I'm sure it's that way for Oak, for the Oak Island people, although their return on money i'm guessing is it's a little better than most of us but but i i I always encourage primary researchers like yourself to stick to you there's a saying uh, shoemakers stick to your trade yeah directly translated from norwegian because books is the best way it's going to keep you focused on your important contribution your, your main work and it's an effective and easy way to get that information out preserved for the posterity notwithstanding so uh, you're just going to get distracted and bogged down into even more work if you start uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, fooling around with other outlets than that. Uh, before we close shop today, I realized that one of the points I want to discuss with you, the one about the early Templars and the Mi'kmaqs and other stuff and the early journeys to America is so huge topic that I suggest you come back in the future. Yeah, And we continue with uh, that thread. But there's one more thing I want to take on before we throw in the towel today. And that's about the Knights Baronet. When you told me how they were conceived, my intuitive uh, reading of the context here, and I want you to comment upon this, is that, first of all, they do not seem to be a project that would want to like we, we're making a new order which is going to exist for the rest of time and it's going to have a lot of secrets and rituals and lore and like a Freemason or like a Knights Templar. In fact, they wouldn't even need Masons if 
if that was the point of baronets. And right. they wouldn't sell these memberships if that was the point. My read of it is that they basically went around to Templars. You documented half of them, but who knows? Maybe all of them were somehow were connection. They went to the old Templar remnants and they said, look, folks, we have this plan that some of you know about, which is to bring everything over to the new country where we can breathe. And we need a fundraiser for this. So any of you guys who want to join in and support this will be knighted with this uh, yep. th- this thing we've created. So, so it's not really to buy a knighthood. It's more like a fundraiser. It's more like a support among the troops who are already there, who can afford it, who is still interested, who want to stick their heads out. Okay, come on, bam. Uh, yes, we're on board. And, and yeah, and that land, you know, land was getting more and more restricted in Scotland and England and, and deforested and all that. And here they were offered gigantic chunk of land uh, right. for their. Yeah. So if it was up to them, some of them never took it. They would invest them in the land and they typically would do it on the property where they'd pick up a stone and, or dirt and drop it. And that would mean it was officially their property. Well, They've created a spot in Edinburgh Castle that's they that the king named it as part of Nova Scotia. And that's where everybody took investment of their land right there. Mm. And uh, so they never saw their land. A lot of them didn't. And it was their choice. Mm. They put the money in, like you said, uh, on a bet that this is going to develop it, uh, like an investment type thing. Mm. But they were too busy with the rest of their lives to ever... But other ones, yeah. But I think it's more than just. uh, Of course, they need something back. But I think it's more than just an investment opportunity. I think it's related. Otherwise, it would be more random people. Half of them Templars, only from what you discovered. Yeah. So many of them Masons. I think it's also connected to, if nothing else, uh, then a preservation spot. But I think it goes back to the dream of a Templar state, the old dream that their predecessors had. We know. Sir Henry Sinclair had that dream and uh, others, even Bacon is flirting with that in New Atlantis and probably your guy, uh, James Alexander, uh, William Alexander too. So uh, I think they were appealing, if nothing else, to that sentiment that, look, folks, we'll give you We'll give you land and we'll try to build up uh, this uh, safe space for us there. And uh, that kind of explains why it would... It will survive as a family kind of thing, right? But it wouldn't survive. It wouldn't survive as a occult order per se, because it never was. For that, they had first the Templars and then eventually the Masons. Uh, they and, and in this period, I think was the Rosicrucian order was called was was a code name, the project name for those who were in the know, those who wanted to move the invaluable treasures over mm-hmm. and who were fooling around with the codes and documents, not just Shakespeare, by the way. I've had people on who have found similar um, things in related, but that's another story. I'll not even go into it there. So that uh, you have the Templars, you have this uh, middle period with the Rosicrucians and then the Knights of uh, Baronet as a specific tie between those in the know and their network for the spot in uh, Nova Scotia. And um, I don't know when the Masons popped up, 
like in the new version. Uh, but maybe that was the kind of the vehicle for the for their esoteric lore all this time, if you see what yeah, I mean. It, so now I'm trying to distinguish these different branches of these groups or networks that all these same people were having. So that you can see how these different uh, vehicles had different purposes. And I think it's very obvious that the nice baronet had a limited purpose, which had specifically to do with getting their asses over from Scotland to uh, Nova Scotia. My, my read. I have a book where it is right now, but it's called The Cousins' War, and it's literally like trying to read the Bible and the dictionary. It's that (laughs) thick and full, but its main theme, and I didn't read the whole book, but I read enough of it to understand, is that there were essentially two trains of thought that that, uh, followed through the English Civil War and then through the uh, wars in... uh, uh, the Revolutionary War, mm. but from Northern Ireland, a lot of influence there, mm-hmm. and then through the American Civil War. And it was essentially, I'm going to simplify this way too much, but it was the pragmatic, mundane, progressive in the sense of industrial revolution, that type of thing, mm-hmm. faction against the, we love the old days where we all rode on night, on horses and wore capes and uh, <laughs> uh and we want that the family thing and the and that old time religion type thing mm. and they the two couldn't mix and they they went through all three wars to show how it was a lot a lot of it was one of those factions against another and basically it was like a lot of extreme control against the freedom to be uh to have some uh, enjoyment and fascination with life you know it's like uh you're working in the you're working in the factory shut up or you're out riding through your fields with your cape on having a great old time you know and it was that kind of thing so and i can see that a lot now in in all of this that people that were like for instance oliver cromwell and particularly the presbyterians even more than the anglicans i mean they just cut out all kinds of fancy church stuff yeah you know i mean all that particularly presbyterians were like as as a plane of a church and now their philosophy was somewhat the foundation for america but it was mm. but their i mean their laws and all that mm. but they you look at a an ancient catholic cathedral and then you look at a presbyterian church and the presbyterian church looks like the garage for the <laughs> cathedral <laughs> yeah. they're just so different it's a different mentality and and i think there's kind of worth in both but Sure, a lot of people might have died building a big cathedral, and a lot of people didn't get paid a lot or whatever, but that cathedral has lasted, and it has been a wonder for people Mm. for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm. And uh, if it was just a mundane building built there, it would have burnt down or got tore down for the stones or something a long time ago, and nobody would know that the history and and the wonder of those kinds of buildings and everything. So uh, it's kind of like philanthropy and I get on a soapbox, but 
yeah, Bill Gates got rich on the back of a lot of people, but now he's able to spend millions, if not billions of dollars to help countries that are in trouble or whatever, you know, that unless somebody can build up a treasure like that in order to help somebody, nobody's going to get any help. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a, it's kind of a, which side to take, you know, be fair to everybody all the way down the line or let some people grow bigger so that they can do stuff for the world, come back to the world and say, okay, now we're going to fix that bridge or we're going to get you desalinized water or whatever, because now I have the money to do it, you know? So, Mm. But I don't think everybody's altruistic like that. I think most people, well, not most, but a lot of rich people, especially back then, were in it for their own big mansion that they could build or whatever. You know, you look at some of those British mansions like Thomas Howard's Mm. mansion and Oddly in houses where I got the painting from 1634 of William Alexander and Charles uh, the first. And that thing that they used it for the, they used a pattern for that, that one famous British show, uh, the stuffy one where they're with the maids and all that. I can't think of the show. Oh, yeah. Wait. I think I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, but they're, they're just unbelievable, you know, that, mm. and, uh, so anyway, a lot of people have, I always say that the survival is the number one motivation motivator, but greed is the number two, <laughs> you yeah, know, because yeah, yeah. If, uh, if you already have. Yeah, but, but, but don't, no, if, but don't discount the, some of these were true believers and that's where the idealism comes yeah, in. Yeah, really, reality yeah. Is, is in there too. Yeah, I, I, I include that in the group. They're probably the try, mm-hmm. triad of it all is... Uh, survival uh and I, you could probably find a different word besides greed but ambition let's say ambition yeah, yeah. and uh spirituality and most of them talk like like uh william alexander in his book talked a lot about religion on the importance of it and so there was no they weren't hiding the fact that they were wearing a cross around their neck or whatever mm. yeah all right well if okay, you want to yes. close out it's been quite Oh. Yeah, let's close shop. Let me ask you this. Uh, are you working on any book for today? Yes, uh, I'm working on, because I mentioned the Freemasons in all these different aspects, but never specifically, I just, I thought that it would be helpful if I wrote a book, I'm calling it Oak Island Masonic Conspiracy. Mm. And it's as much as I can possibly do it, it's only going to be the beginnings of Freemasonry and these people that I've been talking about and the Oak Island mystery. It's not going to get into New Ross and, uh, you know, it's so easy to get off track. Yeah, you know, yeah. you find something, well, that's a cool story and you put it in there and then sometimes you go back and read, well, why did I even bother taking up that space? So that story, mm-hmm. I mean, it's neat, but it's not uh, germane to the subject matter. So I thought if I really stuck to my guns and, and uh, stuck to the formula, uh, I could do one that was strictly Freemason to Oak Island with the evidence that I've collected. And then probably... Plus the evidence that's already there, right? You have to include that. What's too. that? And the evidence that's already there. Yeah, yeah. Mm. A lot of it would be what's already there, but mm. we've already been, me and my Freemason buddy have already been finding so much stuff that every day we're wowing the other one with, <laughs> you're not going to believe around, you know, and... Like those three guys that got the Templar money from that James Sandyland mm-hmm. and their grandsons became Knights Baronet. I didn't know about that. And he just wrote me and said, 
isn't it odd that these three men got the money? Uh, what do you know about them? Mm. So that was the seed of it. So I just started looking and found out that they were, that their grandsons were all on the Knights Baronet list. And, you know, and that's a big deal, but I didn't know that before. And that just came about three or four days ago. So it's amazing how fast and furious the information can come. And um, I do get lost in this. I'll come up here for a lot of times. My pattern was for a long time, for years, I would come up about eight in the morning and I would usually write till uh, write and or research until noon or one. Then I would try to have a day <laughs> doing other things because I'm retired now, mm-hmm. doing something with the wife or traveling or whatever. Then I would come up at night, read what I did, and I'd do some more research. And some nights I'd be up here till three, like three o'clock in the morning. I had no concept it was that time. Mm-hmm. I'd just be typing along and this, that, and the other thing. I'd look up at my time on the computer and go, mm-hmm. what? Yes. 3.05? You got to get to sleep. All creative you know? people know this syndrome. It's yeah. the it's the passion. that it, it shows that you're doing what you're meant to do, man. That's what it does. Yeah. Now, uh, before uh, I say goodbye, I want to tip you off a uh, mystery close to, clo- a little closer to home because you said you were from Philadelphia, right? I mean, from Pen- well, Pennsylvania. Yeah, the side of Pennsylvania, but yeah. Right. So there was uh, there's this Freemason who in the 1800s published a book. His, his name is Julius Saxe. He's a German uh, heritage. Now, Saxe, he, I don't know how you pronounce it in English, S A C H E, I think. Now, he proved that some of the founders of the pietistic communities there were actually Rosicrucians. And uh, yes, uh, one of the, we have uh, details like the ship's name and everything. One of them, I forgot the ship. Um, Maybe the ship was called Philadelphia, but uh, one of them was uh, under Grandmaster Johannes Kelpius from Transylvania of all places. And uh, they have found Saxe was historian, so he collected, you know, the books and the stuff that they, uh, among others, were the document, the secret symbols of the Rosicrucians, huge, well-known publication, uh, lots of Kabbalistic stuff. Speaking of the Tree of Life, so they weren't just in Nova Scotia. They, uh, but this was more like I don't think this was a secret project or anything. This was more like communities finding peace and safe space spots in the new land right so they came from all over europe yeah. like like the pietists did and everyone who was a religious minority who had an extra incentive not just an adventurer but actually not just people who moved to something but also tried to <laughs> flee from something if you see what i mean yeah so that's uh that's your area man uh it's it's a deep connection it was originally it was meant to be uh any religion you know it didn't matter that that's why there were a lot of quakers here that's why there were a lot of yeah pennsylvania dutch here and the scotch irish were mostly presbyterian so it was meant for that it, you know there were eventually different groups would command the stage but that was the original intention whereas like maryland was strictly catholic you know right but right Love it of Pennsylvania. You could be a Quaker. You could be a Pennsylvania Dutch Lutheran. I yeah, guess they even they even had Bektoshi there. That's a Sufi sect from Turkey. They had uh, among them uh, mystics from uh, speaking of Islam. We, we'll cover that next time. But there were, yes, there were connections between Islam and Templars. 
So, so yeah. Uh, hey, last information I want to give you. What I will do, but give me some time because I'm super busy. Thank I will send you links to Peter Amundsen's um, uh, documentaries and vid- uh, and films because they are free online. Uh, and uh, I have also interviews with him. I, I believe I sent you some links. So you can see if you can glean some info from there because there are some Masonic stuff. It's not his main stuff, but it's incidental stuff he digs up in his own travel, right? And some of those side tracks could be in, uh, interesting for you, I suspect. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to leave you with one last nut that you're going to just yep. say is unbelievable, but William Alexander, you know, is my main guy. Yep, yep. He, there was this other William Alexander that was a one of Washington's number one commanders, and I think I told you earlier how he went over there and tried to claim the titles. Mm-hmm. Well, when George Washington was initiated as a Freemason. On the list of Freemasons that day, the next line underneath that is James Strachan. Mm. And James was one of the more, most common names in the Strachan family. The last uh, baronet was a, a James. The a guy that came to, to Halifax was a James. His son, John, owned the Northern Cross lots, etc. And Benjamin Franklin's one of his biggest pen pals who lived over in England was William Strachan. He was born William Strachan, but he took the sea out and went with Strahan. Mm. And oh, and there's 103, I believe, letters. I have 30-some of them right now. I just started going through them, and I'm looking for codes or something. I'm looking for, You're right. you know, not niceties, but where, where are you telling the real secrets? But uh, so here you got Franklin with a good friend, William Strachan. You got... Um, Washington becoming a Freemason with James Strachan, and, and you got Washington having one of his biggest commanders, William Alexander. So mm. uh, that's a new area for me, and uh, I got so many areas. I'm like uh, just spinning like a top at the moment. But uh, you give me the next time. The- next time we hear from you, Jim, we'll go into. You will have published your book by then, so we'll discuss more the Masonic tie, and we'll go back in history and look a little more at. Uh, template sounds like a plan okay and if anybody out there is looking for a book i i do think i would pick oak island and new ross as a real possibility and then the oak island curses codes and secret societies because those were pretty earth-shattering those two so anyway by, by, by the way do you have a website people can go to yes oak island gold g-o-l-d okay dot com okay oakislandgold.com all my books are on there some of my uh stuff is on there some photos i uh i'm a fellow with the society of antiquaries of scotland i have my letter from them but i had to black out some of the you know personal things or whatever Mm. um i have some pictures with rick and being up on the money pit whatever you know Mm. Uh, but anyway, that tells us the, a little synopsis of every single book, and it has an Amazon link to them all. Okay, super. But if somebody wants to say what the heck are his books about, that would be the place to go. So it's just oakislandgold.com. Excellent. Then it just remains for me to thank you so much for your time and looking so forward to our next session. It was great fun, and it's the, that by far the longest, <laughs> the longest episode ever. So that's cool. <laughs> 
Yeah. All right. Thanks. Okay. Thanks a lot, Jim. All right. Thank now uh, get some uh, well-deserved rest. <laughs> uh, talk to you later. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Thus far today. Now, this mystery of what happened at Oak Island, which intersects with a few other mysteries we're shedding light on, such as the... Shakespeare and Rosicrucian Project and, of course, the Templars and uh, how how this, this underground impulse transformed throughout history is something we will pursue. Because it seems to me that there was several large transitions. First, you may say, it began with uh, the establishment of the Templars, which is, which is a mystery in itself, of course. And... Um, what was the what was the real story behind that? Where did they come from? Why were they created, etc.? There's more that meets the eye there. And of course, everything they were up to, how they grew into a huge multinational corporation. The second big step, I would say, is the banishment of them when they were taken down by the church and uh, vain, corrupt king in collusion. And I, I say the third transition is kind of the time frame we've been discussing today, where it seems that, you know, the, the civil war in England, the ousting of the old order, the Puritans taking over, the new country discovered. I, could, I, can, say, I can see how you had something to live for when nobody knew about that place. Uh, I mean, when I say nobody, I mean, of course, when the public... Overton window did not include an America. You had something, but it all seems to become trivialized and degenerated during the 1600s. I would say after, of course, Bacon, etc. Uh, so very quickly, it's, there seems to be a disconnection with the roots. Yes, the Masons arise, but something is broken there too. They lost their secrets. Obviously, it wasn't like something everybody knew about. It was the founders or the originals that did. But but why a, a, a huge order out of that? And uh, this baronet project, what's that? What was the real purpose or the role, the place it had in it all? Like we discussed in the show, it seems to be a scheme to raise money for completing this project, but maybe also a way to emigrate, to, to get this Templar state. But, you know, the new country was flooded with people, so it wasn't any longer exclusive Templar. And you may say there's also a question what happened from there and on, like did some of the founding fathers know about some treasures? Did they even use some of these treasures for the purpose of the revolution. In the Curse of Oak Island series, we can see theories about how the French connection is lost if there was a French hand in this, as well as the English connection. And I suppose we should also mention the Portuguese. They also have a role here. But I do think the Portuguese, French and Scots or, or, or British is the main culprits in this part of the story. Uh, by the way, 
I didn't get to, we didn't have time to go into, I wanted to inquire James about the ancient stuff and uh, the, the more uh, original Templar traces and also about the Mi'kmaqs, however you pronounce that, and uh, of course the Masons. But we'll have him back to focus more on especially the Masons when that book is out. So stay tuned. And now... Uh, to you subscribers of a website, I'm in the process of moving these days, so um, the pace is low. But very soon we will amp up our releases because we have a bunch of shows not out yet from 22. And we've already started to record a 23 show. So this spring, summer of 2023, we will flush out lots and lots of shows to catch up. So be patient and stay tuned for an accelerated release schedule. And the clock is upon us. Thanks for listening and for supporting us. I've been your host Al, signing off in the words of Francis Bacon. They are ill discoverers that think there is no land when they can see nothing but sea. Be seeing Number one.